A running theme with these types of concerns is that you really do have to consume an unrealistic amount of it in order to mm. breach these upper safe thresholds that are established by various health and, and regulatory agencies. And so people are just kind of blowing things out of proportion in their minds. Hey there, welcome to Tater Talks, two bitches talk fitness. I'm Brooke. And hello, I'm Iris. On this show, we challenge the common understanding of what it means and what it takes to be fit and healthy. We explore all things fitness, nutrition, mindset, and mental health without the fluff and BS. So grab a coffee, get ready to laugh, cry, even learn a thing or two. Let's get into it. Welcome back, everybody. Today, we're talking with Alan Aragon, and I'm very excited for this conversation because I've followed you forever, and I think you are just a wealth of knowledge and solid information, but you also package it really well for general population to understand, which I feel like is a very specific skill set. So I greatly appreciate that. I appreciate that right back, Iris. And it's really great to be talking with you and Brooke, especially after having met you at the Inner Circle Retreat of, of our, our friend Jordan Syatt. So I'm really privileged and I'm really happy to be here. How are things going with the oatmeal clan? <laughs> oh, God. <laughs> yeah, that's super interesting. Uh, and yeah. I even had somebody come in and critique me for making that post. You know, they just want sort mm. of this, these expository types of posts where I'm just flat out like teaching somebody as if it's like, well, we got to, it's kind of fun to expose real conversations sometimes, you know, people will literally criticize you for ev any, any possible thing. So I, I was kind of impressed at how I was able to get criticized for posting a, co a real conversation. Oh, well. Oh, oh well. Well. <laughs> <laughs> well, if you are up for it, that is something I definitely like to touch on is the oatmeal and seed oils, which I'm sure you're probably sick to death of talking about at this point. <laughs> no, no, no. I, I enjoy it because until we can really come across, it's just going to keep coming up. I mean, nobody's really closed the lid on it and I'm hoping to try to. I'm actually working on a collaborative post with one of my friends named Dasha Agulnik, Dasha Fitness on Instagram. And we're going to collab and we're going to do a seed oil post and see what happens, you know, it, but it often it's like talking about people's religion or something. They always just take it really personally. So it's an interesting, interesting topic. I like talking about it. Awesome. How do you like to be described like your profession? Today, we're talking with Alan mm -hmm. Aragon. He is a blank. Yeah. Unfortunately, I don't have a nice, neat title. So I just go by researcher and educator. It'd be a whole lot easier if you could just say professor or if you could just say, I don't know, but I'm literally just a somebody who has spent a past life working with people face to face as a trainer and then a nutritional counselor. And then now it's like just trying to educate professionals and educate the public while doing research and publishing things like narrative reviews, meta-analyses, and randomized control trials, and then just trying to gather all that up and 
try to teach everybody what we're finding out. So that that's a complicated <laughs> reality <laughs> of what I am and uh, what I do. Okay. I would really love to talk about, what I mean, wherever this conversation goes, but seed oils and oatmeal, because those are two things that I've seen pop up. And it's crazy what is out there, the fear mongering about like literally anything. But oatmeal and seed oils are the two that I see a lot and that I talk to people a lot about. So first of all, where do you think the fear of the oatmeal comes from, which is such a crazy sentence to say. <laughs> it feels very odd to say that. And what is the truth about that? Yeah, the, the oatmeal fear comes from kind of a variety of sources. And so one of them is the very vocal camp that is just against eating carbs in general. So oatmeal would naturally fall into those crosshairs. So you have that, you have the keto carnivore types who will just lambast any food that's not of animal origin, basically. And so oats are kind of perfect for that because oats have kind of been the darling of the health and, and, and wellness media for many decades now. And then you have folks who have some sort of intolerance or allergy to various grains, and they just kind of tend to to lump oats in with the other grains that can be problematic. And so they get attacked from that angle as well. And it's just that a lot of people just don't like oats and they want to kind of have an excuse to take shots at it <laughs> because they feel like they're supposed to be eating it, but they just don't like it. So it just becomes easy to say, hey, those oats are for peasants or oats are garbage or, or trash or whatever, whatever people say about oats. But there's all of that. Okay. And then there's the, the whole potential for grains as a group to be consumed in their refined state and to be consumed in combination with a bunch of fat and sort of engineered in this hyper palatable mix that a lot of the general public would kind of do better staying away from anyway. Oats are typically not roped in with what I just described, but grains in general, refined grain products are kind of a double-edged sword for, especially for populations trying to avoid body weight gain related chronic diseases and stuff. And they're trying to get leaner, lose body fat, Grain, grain foods can be a double-edged sword for that. So yeah, that is a little bit a nuanced part of the topic. But yeah, naturally oats get lumped in with things like goldfish crackers and frosted mini wheats. And what else do we have here? Like Nutri-Grain nutri bars and, and various mm -hmm. foods that don't quite fit the profile that oatmeal kind of fulfills of kind of this idyllic carb source that happens to be satiating, it happens to have a bunch of beneficial nutrients for the body. Um, it happens to actually cause favorable outcomes in clinical trials. And it does this consistently, you know, and, and even down to effects on body composition. Um, oats are kind of a unique grain in that they don't have this 
mixed body of evidence that's showing negative stuff and positive stuff. With oats, it's extremely, extremely hard to find anything negative or unfavorable about them in the scientific literature. It's wild the things people latch onto, especially the more popular creator side of the internet that it's like they pick one thing and then attach their whole identity to demonizing that one thing. It's an interesting conundrum, I guess, <laughs> for lack of a better word. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. It, it's definitely a first world grievance. You know, when right. you complain about <laughs> <Yeah>. oats, that <laughs> is the <laughs> ultimate first world grievance. And it really just kind of exposes where somebody's at in terms of I don't know, their their fulfillment in life or their just how superficial they can be when you're just kind of nitpicking at the different foods that people are eating. Now, I totally understand the idea of if somebody is just eating, let's say, Pop-Tarts, <laughs> Pop-Tarts for breakfast and let's say an angel food cake for dessert after every meal and then a bunch of ice cream for a late night snack. Yeah, that's, I mean, that's, that's one thing, but when you start attacking these very kind of neutral and um, benevolent carb sources like oats, then it really kind of shows that you are unaware of the research basis, number one. And number two, you're being judgmental about something that doesn't even warrant any real kind of judgment. And there are some folks who are scared about glyphosate and uh, Monsanto pesticide distribution over over humanity. <laughs> but <laughs> there is some consensus on that. Well, with the EFSA and the European Union, and they don't seem to think it's an issue, while there are other organizations who think that glyphosate is an issue. So it is a topic of controversy. But unless you truly are eating a diet where you're really just predominating your intake with glyphosate containing grains and that's all you eat and you're eating a whole lot of it. So I, unless that is the case, then I, I really don't see the issue and it's controversial. That, that part, the glyphosate part is controversial because there's two sides like bickering about it constantly. And it, Hey, if you're worried about it, have oatmeal a maximum of twice a day. All right. If you're worried about it. But your one bowl of oatmeal in the morning or your one bowl of oatmeal as a late night snack or desserty type of thing, if you do it right with the protein and the freaking mm -hmm. peanut butter, you know what I'm saying? Um, oh, yeah. You do it right. <laughs> you know it? You know it? Okay. Oh, yes. <laughs> you probably wouldn't have to worry about the glyphosate content of that within two lifetimes if all you have is oatmeal once or twice a day. Yeah. I've had this idea for a, a reel in the back of my head, but isn't it like... 60 or 70 pounds of oatmeal you'd have to eat to be able in one sitting to be able to even and I don't want to buy 60 or 70 pounds of oatmeal but I have this idea of like you know how much you'd have to eat to even begin to start needing to think about worrying about the effects of glyphosate in your oatmeal and then drag this giant bag of oatmeal in <laughs> yes. but I don't eat it that much just because it's not my go-to so I'm mm -hmm. not gonna buy that. But if anybody else out there wants to do it, go for it. Yeah. A running theme with these types of concerns is that you really do have to consume an unrealistic amount of it in order to mm. breach these upper safe thresholds that are established by 
various health and, and regulatory agencies. And so people are just kind of blowing things out of proportion in their minds. The same thing every year when the dirty dozen comes out that's blown way out of proportion. And I have a, a family member who will only eat the organic strawberries exclusively because of the dirty dozen. And I'm like, it's the same thing. It's like, you know how many strawberries you would have to eat consistently every day for this to even start being a problem? I promise you're not there. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I mean, like if you were props, but you're not. Yeah. And there's some criticism about the environmental working group being not necessarily a very rigorous scientific panel. (laughs) I mean, everybody tries their best, (laughs) but the level of rigor that goes into that and the different checks and balances aren't very extensive with with the dirty dozen. Mm -hmm. And it's once again, it's one of those issues where, okay, if it did matter, then it may take two lifetimes to show any kind of difference. And yeah, I'm just not sold on the dirty dozen thing, especially within the context of a mixed diet where you're not just mainlining these supposed dirty foods in terms of the pesticides, et cetera. And I I think there are many different ways to die. (laughs) And we're all going (laughs) to die by some way, right? So I truly don't think that violating the the laws of the dirty dozen is going to be one of the ways that significantly contributes to people's demise. Mm-hmm. I mean, I don't know anybody that's died from overeating strawberries so far. Yeah. So mm-hmm. that or gained <laughs> massive amounts of body fat and have trouble taking it off. Yeah. Yeah. It reminds me of when the glycemic index, just kind of that concept sort of hit the mainstream, I want to say that that it really started picking up steam 20, 25, 30 years ago, and it still kind of floats around in the media and it makes its its rounds. But when people start thinking, oh gosh, pineapple has a has a high glycemic index. And oh, I also found out that watermelon high glycemic index or higher glycemic index than than your typical fruits. And therefore I'm going to avoid that. There was a time when Barry Sears, this this physician, he he wrote a book called Enter the Zone, and then the zone diet just blew up. But he started warning against the glycemic index of carrots. <laughs> and so when he started warning against the dangers of, of eating carrots, um, then you know that you've taken a wrong turn. <laughs> right. I was just having a conversation uh, the other day with somebody about our favorite guy, Paul Saladino. And I was like, imagine, imagine telling people that spinach is the problem. (laughs) Spinach is the reason they're unhealthy and overweight and unhappy in their skin and that they're going to die in their 40s. Like, (laughs) imagine. It's such a, it's like I was saying about the oatmeal earlier. It's such a crazy thing to actually say out loud. Kind of mind boggling. Paul Saladino, he really reminds me of the liver king. Oh, oh yes. He's, That's like, a name I'd... He's <laughs> like Paul Saladino and the liver king are like two sides of the same coin in a way. And they both have fantastic tans, right? <laughs> <laughs> so it, it's really entertaining. I, I think that Paul Saladino, I just look at him and his content as... This guy's an entertainer, but 
of course, it, it's easy to forget that a lot of the the general public is actually believing what he says and actually taking it in and going, oh boy, I need to mm-hmm. avoid spinach. I need to avoid oats or whatever he's he's demonizing at the moment. And it's really an interesting business model or philosophy or approach. I, I'm going to assume that he himself believes what he's saying. So, you know, oh, well to that, but it, it is kind of unfortunate that that we will lose a lot of people to misinformation for every one person that we save. We're going to lose like 10 people to just absolute BS because it just sounds more provocative. It strikes the emotional chords and it it signals people to action. People just think that, okay, I'm experiencing X, Y, and Z adverse symptom. And then I'm at this point, I'm desperate. I'll try anything. And so they run into somebody like Paul, who's in great shape. His skin color is of rich reddish mahogany. And they just think this guy is it. This is the model. This is the leader. And so unfortunately, people just don't have the knowledge and they don't have the skills to navigate misinformation on the internet, which is just so incredibly rampant. Today, I, I had a little bit of a, an argument with one of the commenters who was criticizing me for posting a conversation I had with somebody in the comments of a previous post. And so this person said, hey, Alan, why don't you just give out information and then we can decide whether we want to believe it or not. Why do you have to bring, why do you have to bring somebody else into it and stuff? And and I, I responded to her by saying, as educators, we have to make our audience aware of the misinformation out there. And what better way to do that than give an example of somebody just confidently dishing this misinformation out. And then you can show the counterpoints to it. And then you can show how these counterpoints were supported with scientific research. And so sometimes people get a little bit annoyed or aggrieved, or it doesn't really sit well with them when one of the perfect examples of this is what Lane Norton does. He will be criticizing somebody of somebody's misinformation. And then some people take that the wrong way. They think that he's just being a dick or something like that. But the fact of the matter is, most of the information out there, especially outside of the, in quotes, the evidence-based circles where we do our best to kind of relay what's going on with the weight of the evidence in in scientific research. Scientific research isn't perfect. Uh, it's not free of bias. It's not free of errors and mistakes and, and misinformation, but it beats the heck out of somebody just relaying their personal experience this is my personal experience with, let's say, cutting spinach out of my diet or cutting oats out of my diet. And my life just got so much better. My symptoms disappeared. I started looking like an Adonis. I started looking like Paul Saladino. <laughs> and that's just what we try to do. So back to this example I'm giving, I think it's important to spend a certain amount of time as an educator exposing misinformation. And I think that there's a way to do that without creating enemies and being antagonistic. I think you can respectfully present counterpoints. And there's a lot of it to to 
present. There's a lot of counterpoints to present to a whole lot of media out there. I get sent clips all the time of folks making these really wild claims. One of the last ones I got sent was by a gentleman named Gary Brecka, who said that there's nothing on planet Earth that's more fat burning than than getting in cold water. <laughs> right. Well, what's more fat burning than that is getting up and moving, actually. <laughs> <laughs> I, I did a collaboration with a friend of mine named Alan Bacon, and he dug up some really interesting research showing that if you are exposed to, to cold temperatures for a 24-hour period, your thermogenesis may go up by 20 to 50 calories in a 24-hour period. Oh, <laughs> 30 so to, like, no, not worth it. Not worth, wow. not worth wow. the plunge. No, thank no, you. No, no, not really, right? And, and then there was another paper that I came across showing how trips to the Arctic, where you live there from three to 12 months, there was a tendency for the inhabitants to gain about a kilogram a month, I think was the was the statistic. If, I, if I'm wrong, well, then- Someone will tell us. <laughs> yeah, yeah, somebody will point it out. Right? <laughs> but the main point is there was a tendency to gain a significant amount of weight while you're hanging out in cold weather, because no matter how much you, you know, you stoke your brown fat stores, which are minuscule in the body anyway, and no much, no matter how much you shiver or whatever it is, this is also accompanied by increases in appetite and decreases in hunger control. And then the body has this ingenious way of staying the same, regardless of your increased thermogenesis from just being in a cold region or spending periodic, periodic times in either underwater or in cold air, the body just knows how to regulate itself. And then it ends up being a case of, well, this isn't necessarily a reliable tactic to lose body fat. We can't just simply tell people, get some cold exposure for, I don't know, whatever protocol you want to, you want to choose, three minutes to 20 minutes a day. And then you'll magically just start losing weight and fat. No, that's not true. It just doesn't work that way. And, and it's disappointing for people to hear a lot of the time. Yeah, which goes to talking about, I think, perfect segue, talking about flexible dieting, which for the listeners, flexible dieting by Alan Aragon is an excellent read. Can you define what that means? Sure. First of all, thank you. And okay, so flexible dieting is often mistakenly construed as macro counting. And so that's incorrect per the origins of flexible dieting in the scientific literature, where flexible dieting is actually a cognitive style of dietary restraint, where you do not view foods and dieting in black and white dichotomous terms, black, white, good, bad, angelic foods, evil foods, superfoods, <laughs> and then just foods that are prohibited completely. And along those lines, you don't view dieting as an all or nothing endeavor. It's not you're doing 100% great or you're 100% failing. It's more of being able to look at foods and dieting on a gray scale. So are you doing good most of the time? Great. You're going to trend forward in your progress. That is what flexible dieting is. It's 
flexible dietary restraint or flexible dietary control that involves the perception of foods and dieting on a grayscale instead of on this dichotomous good, bad, black, white, all or nothing. And so the way that macro counting started becoming synonymous with flexible dieting is because number one, it was apparently a big deal for a lot of people to discover that you can hit a certain protein, carb, and fat gram goal in the day and still reach your body composition goals with almost any kind of food. <laughs> that was a huge discovery for a lot of folks. And so hence the flexible dieting moniker, because there was indeed flexibility of food selection as long as you hit your macronutrient targets. Okay. That's still not flexible dieting per se. And in a sense, it can be very rigid if somebody is prone to obsessing over the micromanagement of reaching these minuscule, very precise gram goals. That's kind of what flexible dieting is and what flexible dieting isn't. Uh, macro counting is just simply a, a, one of the many dietary approaches that can actually have a tendency towards being kind of rigid. <laughs> so, <laughs> yeah. 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 So it's flexible dieting is more of a mindset. I mean, it is the mindset thing, no matter which eating strategy you choose. It's just a flexible, open, not emotionally ridden way of eating. Yes. Yes. And something that's easy to overlook is that Flexible dieting encompasses a flexibility of the dietary approach, and this would be taken on according to the individual's personality, what their tendencies and preferences are. Like some individuals hate the idea of quantifying and measuring everything down to the last gram. And that's fine. They should not have to try to force themselves into a model like counting macros on an app that would kind of corner them into a very precise and micromanaging and quantitative type of lifestyle with respect to diet. These individuals would fare much better, especially in the long term, with much more broad guidelines much more qualitative types of guidelines. Whereas the other group, the other end, end of the spectrum, some people actually enjoy plugging numbers into an app where they count macros and calories and they enjoy it and they can kind of do it for long periods of time and it keeps them motivated, it keeps them focused. That's great. So the, the flexible dieting model would say, hey, people have different psychographic makeups. And so therefore people should go with what they personally prefer in terms of a more habits and qualitative based approach versus a more precise and quantitative and micromanaging type of approach. And, and believe it or not, some people, they do well with cycling between those two, depending on what they're trying to accomplish for a given season or a different phase or a given sport. And so sometimes people have an off-season type of phase where they're much looser about their tracking and they have sort of in-season phases and any, even on a formal basis, on an informal basis, as well as a formal basis, some people look at 
the oncoming summer months <laughs> and the, the time spent at the pool and the beach as sort of a time to kind of tighten up on tracking and be more quantitative. So all of those things can be very flexible. And the thing flexible dieting was originally attributed to in the fitness phase was the flexibility of, of foods that you select to hit your targets. That's also a part of flexible dieting. So flexible dieting is this huge umbrella that encompasses a, a bunch of different approaches. It's not just mm -hmm. counting your grams of protein, carbohydrates, and fat. That's not what flexible dieting is. That's not how to define it. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I see the two things conflated. And I also see calorie tracking conflated with being in a calorie deficit, which is not always correct. As someone who <laughs> has been down that road of, well, I'm tracking things, but I'm not losing fat. Oh, it's because I'm not actually in a calorie deficit. So I feel like the whole flexible dieting idea, though, it's kind of a pick your own adventure what works for both the way your brain works and for your goals. Because I know Brooke and I both, we like the data of tracking. We also go for periods of not tracking. And it's just different tools for different things. I also joke that I'm an intermittent, intermittent faster just because sometimes I do it, sometimes I don't, depending on what phase I'm in and whether or not I'm hungry in the morning. I don't label it. It's just kind of what it is. But people can benefit from knowing that that can also morph over your life. And depending on the phase you're in, you know, as long as you're staying grounded in the mindset of it, where it's not this rigid all or nothing on track, off track, good food, bad food, can't eat that kind of deal. Mm -hmm. Yes. And people will just have different uh, seasons and phases in the evolution of their life where let's say you've been through months or years of tracking and quantifying your intake and you have a strong handle on what you enjoy eating in terms of a, a meal pattern and how different foods affect you both health-wise and performance-wise and you use that time where you're quantifying to establish a routine that you can just kind of ride into the sunset and then you don't necessarily need to always um, micromanage the tracking of things because you have a good ballpark idea of what can either maintain your goals or keep you progressing towards your goals. And so, so yeah, I, 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 I'm a proponent of everybody at least having an idea of what, like how many grams of protein are in a palm-sized piece of meat, given you specify whose palm it is whether you're including the fingers or not, right? So like with me, <laughs> like a six ounce piece of meat right here, minus the fingers and thumb, you know, this thickness, let's say, people should be aware of about how many grams of protein is in that piece of meat because it can come in handy when you're trying to do some of the foundational stuff that we talk about a lot. Getting enough protein each day is important. How do you do that? You know, what foods or what servings of a given food amount to, let's say, a 30 to 40 gram chunk of protein, which most people are going to want to accumulate three to four, maybe five times in, in a day, or <laughs> how much of these servings of food are you going to need to eat by the end of the day 
in order to hit that protein goal. So I think it's important for people to know that with carbohydrate foods as well. I think it's important for people to know that with, to a degree with, with fat, I think that there's different approaches to tracking that can make things easier for folks. Like for example, instead of tracking all of the macronutrients, you just keep track of how much protein you're having in the day. Let's say you have a, a 120 or 150 gram goal in the day, and that's all you track. That can lead to some pretty good results for a lot of people. If you want to add another element there, okay, track total calories and protein. Um, that That's another thing that that can be done that I've seen a lot of people be successful with. And that way you can be flexible about the carbohydrate target as well as the fat target. And there's going to be certain exceptions with people who have very specific competitive athletic goals where they're going to need to be aware of whether they're consuming enough carbohydrate or not. But this isn't going to represent most of the general public. On the topic of tracking things, Something that gets lost among the general public and even the fitness professionals who have not come up in the the dietetics teaching curriculum is, is the idea of balance across the food groups. Why are there food groups, servings from, from these food groups? And I think that this is an unimportant thing that gets lost among fitness professionals and enthusiasts that, okay, there is a meat slash high protein group. There is a fat rich food group. There's a non-starchy vegetable group or fibrous vegetable group. There is the starch group that encompasses grains, um, legumes, and tubers. And there is the the dairy group that encompasses milk, cheese, yogurt. And there is the fruit group, which, well, it encompasses fruits. (laughs) If people are aware of those food groups, and they can get a certain amount from each. And granted, there's going to be issues with vegans and the dairy group. There's barring exceptions like people avoiding certain, you know, any number or one of those groups. Then when you consume a variety of foods across those groups and within those groups, then you're doing the most that you can to consume a sufficient or even an abundant spectrum of nutrients. And if you do that while being aware of your macronutrient needs, then then you're kind of achieving the best of both worlds in terms of achieving ideal macronutrition and attempting to achieve complete micronutrition as well and getting enough fiber and non-essential nutrients that happen to benefit health and prevent chronic disease in the long term. So I think that there is a whole lot more to the picture of learning how to eat in quotes well and learning how to track properly. I think it goes, sometimes it goes far beyond just the macronutrient grams. Like I really do try to make sure I cover all those food groups each day, if not most of the days of the week. Thankfully, I don't have any sort of intolerance to any of those food groups. I don't have any ideological issues with with consuming animal-based foods. And so there's really nothing stopping folks like myself from achieving potentially optimal (laughs) (laughs) optimal health without necessarily just just focusing on, okay, carbohydrate grams, fat grams, protein grams, 
we already learned that we can kind of now move on and make sure our diet is well balanced in terms of food selection. Mm -hmm. Can we touch on protein just for a minute or a few? Because this is a question that I see all the time from clients and forum members. We're both coaches for Beth Farako on Team BFF, and we see this with clients and challengers all the time, is protein. Like your body cannot, this is the idea, your body cannot handle more than 30 grams per meal. And if you eat more than that, it's just a waste. We know this is not true, but can you explain that to us? Sure. The best way to explain that is first getting straight that there's two different things we're talking about here with regard to protein intake and how much the body can use. So the the first part is how much can the body digest and assimilate and use for various metabolic fates from bolstering immunity to preserving the integrity of various cellular systems to just simply gaining the energy and the nutrients systemically, like just system-wide, organism-wide. So there's this sort of holistic picture, how much protein gets used by the body, digested, absorbed, and used by the body. That's, That's one part. And the second part is, and this is where the confusion comes in, how much of that protein is directed specifically towards the building of muscle tissue, of skeletal muscle tissue, how much of that protein goes to the muscle. (laughs) (laughs) So that's what we have to establish. A, how much can the, how much protein can the body actually use on a whole organism basis, digest, absorb, utilize for various vital processes. And then the second part, which we have to distinguish and which a lot of people fail to distinguish when they're arguing about this is, okay, well, great. How much of that protein is used towards muscle protein synthesis? So net gains in muscle protein for the purpose of supporting and growing muscle. So once you get those two things established, then everything kind of becomes pretty clear. So the amount of protein in a single dose where you maximize muscle protein synthesis is somewhere around 0.4 0.4 to 0.6 grams per kilogram of body weight or 0.2 to 0.25 grams per pound of body weight. So in most people, this is going to boil down to about oh, 30 to 50 to 60-ish grams, depending on the size of the person. So how much lean body mass they have. We'll just say 30 to 50 grams of protein is what maxes out muscle protein synthesis. Okay. Now, <laughs> the rest that doesn't get directed towards muscle protein synthesis is still used in some way or another by various metabolic pathways. It's not like anytime you breach that 30 to 50 gram intake mark, the protein is going to just come leaking out of your ears or you just excrete it somehow or waste it. No, that's not true. (laughs) That's not true. (laughs) And the reason that's not true is because the body has a very sophisticated regulatory system of the passage of protein foods through the digestion and absorption system. There are multiple checkpoints that are tightly regulated in terms of the the flow through the system. Just to make that example more concrete, if you sit down and try to eat 
two pounds of, of meat, you'll spend all day digesting it. It's not like you're going to eat it and then it's going to suddenly appear in circulation. <laughs> and then your body goes, ah, what do I do with all this, this, these amino acids? No, it doesn't work that way. There is a sophisticated, just multiple sphincter system through the digestive and absorptive tract that the body regulates the timing and the flow. And so if somebody decides to eat one, all their protein in one go, they're not going to waste it. They'll just take all day to digest it. <laughs> so that's kind of how, how that sort of thing works. But I, I want to add a little wrinkle in here that hopefully doesn't complicate things. There's muscle protein synthesis, and then there's whole body protein synthesis. So while we know that muscle protein synthesis, it hits this sort of ceiling effect with 30 to 50 grams, this is not the case with whole body protein synthesis. So there's protein synthesis going on with other lean tissues of the body that are not skeletal muscle. And we just have a lot more nebulous handle on what goes on with that than we do with, with muscle protein. But people who have this goal of gaining muscle as quickly as possible, if they want to do what's hypothetically optimal for that goal is to maximize muscle protein synthesis with each protein feeding and do that the maximum amount of times in the day that they can. <laughs> and so Knowing how to do that first involves knowing what is the maximal total daily protein that the body can use for muscle growth. And that total is somewhere between 0.7 to 1.0 grams per pound, which is 1.6 to 2.2 grams per kilogram. A lot of times people go, oh gosh, you know, that's so much. Aren't we just trying to feed lean body mass? And what if somebody... What if somebody's obese? Are you going to make them eat like 250 or 300 grams of protein a day? Okay. Little wrinkle there. You can set protein on target body weight if you happen to have obesity. Uh, if you are of normal weight, then you can use current body weight. Or you can just across the board base protein on target body weight, which is what I tend to do. Okay. So first priority in the hierarchy of importance is total daily protein. So that would be somewhere between 1.6 to 2.2 grams per kilogram of body weight. And once you got that right, everything else is just kind of icing on the cake. So if you want to do what's hypothetically going to max muscle growth, then you would have 0.4 to 0.6 grams of protein per kilogram of body weight, or about 0.2 to 0.25-ish grams per pound at each meal as, as a minimum at each meal. And then you would have that four times in the day. And then you would end up hitting that total of 0.7 to 1.0 grams per pound of target body weight. So that's kind of the bigger picture of, of protein intake, how to maximize muscle growth and how to kind of strategize protein distribution through the day in order to achieve that goal. But I want to throw in a disclaimer there. If you don't do that, if you don't do that fancy 0.4 to 0.6 grams per kilo, four times a day protein distribution over the course of the day, let's say you eat three meals a day, 
that have a substantial amount of protein and you still hit 0.7 to 1.0 grams per pound of target body weight for the day, chances are you'll still be maximizing your muscle growth. Now, if you decide to eat your protein in only one or two meals in the day, but you hit that um, ideal total, I would start doubting whether you're doing all you can to maximize muscle protein synthesis and hence maximize muscle growth. So I think there's a threshold there where we can say, yeah, you're doing all you can. And I think it, it begins at three protein rich feedings a day, hitting the total that I just mentioned, but we don't know for sure. That's speculatively and based on circumstantial evidence, that's what the ideal distribution is. We kind of know what the total is, but distribution wise, we're just kind of speculating because the data just are not there for us to be really firm and in that. How was that for a ramble? That's great. <laughs> I love it. That's I love great. it. Great. No, I get that question all the time about protein, all the time, where people they just can't seem to get it, hit their target numbers. And that's usually the clients where they are only eating one to two times a day. And they're they're telling us, oh, well, hitting that protein target is just way too hard. And then when you go and actually look through their their food diary, their food log, whatever they may be using, you're like, well, you're only eating two meals a day and hitting 80 grams of protein. Like this is the redistribution I feel like as a coach is super helpful. I usually have clients front load their day with protein and have the first two meals a little bit higher protein because when clients try to load their protein at night, it's just has not been good experiences for those clients. Sleep isn't yeah. good. Sleep's a little bit thrown off. And I find clients getting really, really frustrated. So I love that you touched on distributing the protein throughout the day, because I know that when you're not doing that or when they're doing this whole eat one meal a day shit, you just outlined it beautifully for people to actually understand and grasp, which is one of the reasons why I love your book is because when you go through it, it's like, oh, he's breaking it down in ways that I understand. So I think that was super helpful for those listening. Well, thank you, Brooke. I'm, I'm glad you found that helpful. I think that for me personally, and also observationally in, in clients and people in the community, if you find a protein powder that you like, especially if you could find a couple different flavors that you like, it makes hitting protein goals pretty easy. And if you don't have some sort of hang up about consuming protein powder, <laughs> then it makes it pretty easy. Like two scoops of protein powder, 40 to 50 grams of protein right there. And so with a lot of folks that'll cover a third to a half <laughs> of their protein intake for the day. With me personally, what I have a shake that covers like literally that's 48 grams of protein there. And then lately, since we're in the beginning to get cold months, Break out the oatmeal, baby. Just <laughs> comfort. No, <laughs> not the oatmeal. Powder in that. Yeah, yeah I know. <laughs> it's it's just more than half of my day's protein is covered, and so yeah, protein powder is a really good tool for hitting those goals. If you're not somebody who is prone to just noshing on just chunks of flesh all day to try to try to hit your protein goals, or sucking down Greek yogurt. And then you got like eating a bunch of eggs a day. Protein powder is a good thing. 
it's very interesting. The individuals that really are trying to get their protein in with whole food sources. I love that. That's like the first thing that they're thinking of, but some people, they really dislike using protein powder even pre-made protein shakes. I've, I've been like astonished as a coach when clients are like, well, I don't want to have to rely on those things. Well, when in fact, it's not relying on it, it's just using it as a tool to try to hit your daily intake. Yeah. Yeah. I think it's important for people to realize that protein powders and pre-made protein shakes, they are distinctly different, both nutritionally and health impact wise from refined and engineered carbohydrate foods. Anytime a food is sort of re-engineered from its original state, we tend to recoil and go, oh, okay, well, that's processed, that's that's refined. Mm-hmm. Protein powder is kind of the exception here because you're generally, I mean, with things like like whey with, with dairy-based proteins, and of course with the plant-based proteins as well, you're, you're just literally taking the most nutrient-dense part of the the protein source and you're just isolating it and you're making it consumable. And so food technology is not always this bad thing that takes whole unrefined foods and transforms them into this food-like ultra-processed refined substance that negatively impacts health and body composition. That's not always the case. And it's especially not the case with protein powders, especially when you look at the research on the impact of something like whey protein on health indexes and body composition indexes, the overwhelming majority of the research on that topic shows favorable outcomes with whey protein supplementation in the diet for both health parameters as well as body composition parameters. If it showed negative stuff consistently and it showed concerning stuff, well, naturally we would have the license to say, you know, this protein powder thing, oh boy, not a good idea. But yeah, (laughs) that's just not the case at all. And I will add too, I mean, anecdotally and for clients that I've seen kind of transitioning into not being an intermittent faster I am very unhungry in the morning. And so a core power is not very filling, but it also gives me that nice hit of protein and kind of makes me start being hungry for some carbs or some other thing before I go to work out because I train early just because of my schedule. I've seen that be very helpful for a lot of people if they can get past the hang up of the, oh, the processing automatically means that I shouldn't be having it. Mm-hmm. Yes. Processing isn't always bad. And protein tends to be the exception about the processing aspect of of food technology. I I know that we're running out of time, but I wanted to mention when we we talked about protein distribution, about this sort of ideal 0.4 to 0.6 grams per kilogram of body weight per protein dose, four times a day type of thing. That was specifically for the goal of muscle gain. Mm -hmm. So muscle retention while losing fat doesn't really have those goals. And we know that because there's been a bunch of research showing much lower meal frequency down to every other day, zero calorie, every other day fasting, still hanging on to lean body mass, low frequency, one to two meals a day, still holding on to muscle mass during a caloric deficit, even with 
or especially when there's resistance training involved. So I wanted to make it clear that for people who have fat loss as the main goal and, and muscle retention during fat loss, they don't have to worry about this idyllic morning to night distribution of pro these neat metered protein doses, the way that people who are trying to gain muscle should be kind of focused on at least getting three substantial hits of protein to achieve their total for the day. So I just wanted to make that clear because I know that a lot of the general public couldn't give much of a damn about gaining muscle. They just want to lose fat. And so that segment of the population just get your protein total in the way that is comfortable and convenient for you. Yeah. And I could definitely see with, with the protein distribution, how that would affect muscle gain. So I'm, thank you so much for clarifying that because I think having a couple of clients that listen to this, they only eat twice a day, like meals twice a day. They'll eat a couple small mm -hmm. snacks, but eat meals. And I know that they listen to the podcast and they'd be like, what the fuck you want me to eat four times a day? <laughs> like I'm, I'm a nurse. I can't just right. stop and eat a steak. Yeah. Yeah, for sure. For sure. And then you've got the bros who are just struggling there. I just want to gain a few pounds of muscle. And it's like, okay, well. <laughs> That's me. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Iris is the bro. Yeah. I'm over here like, I just want to get jacked, man. <laughs> <laughs> I, I'm with you. I'm with you, Iris. <laughs> yeah. When this is all over, we're just going to go to the mirror and just flex. <laughs> yeah. uh, but it goes back to the flexibility too, right? The flexible mindset of in the best way that you can, in the way that makes sense for your life and your goals, and just don't overcomplicate it. <laughs> yes. Yeah. It, it's simpler, the better, really. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. Keeping it simple. We talk about that. All the time. Nauseam. All the time. <laughs> well, thanks so much, Alan, for coming on. We really appreciate you and your time and all the education you put out on the socials. It's really a gift to the world that is so confused about all of this stuff. Gosh, we, yeah, I'm realizing we really didn't talk about seed oils. We just talked about oats. <laughs> well, <laughs> we'll have you back to talk about seed oil. Because <laughs> that to. is a thing that comes up. It's the insane amount of fear around foods. And I'd love to talk about the food processing idea more as well, because there's so much we can get into there that people are just so afraid of. What does it even mean, first of all? But <laughs> then there's all the other little rabbit trails we can go down. So we'll have you yes. back for sure. Yes, I would love to be back on. And I really appreciate both of you and the questions that you ask, the topics you raise, they're really stuff that I find it totally interesting. So I hope the audience does as well. Well, we hope so. And if they don't, we did. So who cares? <laughs> awesome. <laughs> they will. <laughs> can you tell everybody where they can find you, follow you, connect with you? Sure. You can go to alanaragon.com and all of my stuff is on there. Maybe my biggest platform is Instagram. So it's at the Alan Aragon. I would encourage the more nerdy contingent of your audience to subscribe to my research review, which is something to kind of get lost in if you're like really interested in, in the kind of the fine details of what's going on with nutrition and training and the combination and sort of the research side of that. That's kind of like my ongoing thing that keeps me on top of the research and hopefully my audience on top of the research as well. Yeah. Keeps us coaches on top of it too. Oh, yes. Oh, oh, love to hear that. Love to hear that. Awesome. Well, thank you again. And 
everybody else, have a beautiful day and we'll talk to you next time. Same time, same place. Thank you, Brooke and Alex. Thanks for listening to Tater Talks, two bitches talk fitness. If you enjoyed the show, let us know by writing a review, subscribing wherever you like to listen to podcasts. Find me, Iris, on Instagram at Iris Deadlifts. And you can find me, Brooke, on Instagram at Get You a Brooke. We'll talk to you soon. Nice. Nice. <laughs>